0: we have a few announcements. First of all, to remind everybody that in a couple of weeks on February 6th, that's a Sunday, we will uh, have our congregational meeting immediately following the morning worship service. And everyone is welcome to attend and we need 50% of our members to be here so that we can have a quorum. Also, we have uh, changed the date of the um, men's prayer breakfast and deacons' meeting to the first Saturday in February since I am scheduled to depart for Kiev the following week. And so men's prayer breakfast will be on Saturday the 5th. Also, we always have it right before the congregational meeting to go over things related to the um, uh, congregational meeting itself. And then we've decluttered the kitchen, and there are some things we don't need that have been put in the empty classroom uh, back by the back door next to Aunt Pookie's. And so if you want to go look there to see if you want to take need anything, you may, you're welcome to it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand for ever. Before we get into the Word this uh, evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. So let's take a few moments of silent prayer to confess sin if necessary, to put our focus upon the Lord, because whenever we're studying the Word, that is a time of worship. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for all that you have provided for us and that you are God who has measured our days, measured our steps. You have numbered the hairs on our heads. So if you are concerned about this minutia, then we know that you are concerned about every detail of our life. And Father, we do trust you in these days when so much is uh, uncertain so much seems to be in upheaval around the world that you might help strengthen us to focus on these promises such as the ones I have just recited that we are to trust in you we are not to put our eyes upon whatever the difficulties the attacks the uh, different uh, things that are going on in the world around us but to keep our focus upon you ignoring the waves of adversity and opposition and focusing on uh, our mission before you. Father, help us as we study this evening, continue this study on how you have designed men and women and the impact of sin on that relationship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, today is the 25th of January. And on Thursday, it is January 27th, which has was declared by the UN resolution to be uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. So I just want to say a few things about this because I haven't talked about the Holocaust in a while. And really the ultimate aim in anyone talking about the Holocaust and studying the Holocaust is really studying that which un- was under, underlying the Holocaust, and that is the dangers of antisemitism, And so I just want to review a couple of things just to remind us and to put some information out there that uh, you may be interested in reading or material that if you are a parent or grandparent that you may be interested in providing for your children or grandchildren that they may uh, remember what happened and be involved in what's going on today because antiSemitism is in a marked rise around the world once again. The Holocaust is referred to by the word Shoah in the Hebrew. It is a word that means destruction or catastrophe. And that's become the standard Hebrew term, and you will find many Jews will refer to it as the um, Shoah as opposed to the uh, Holocaust. The word Holocaust, which came into use in the 1950s, comes from a Greek word that really refers to um, uh, the burnt offering. And uh, it comes from two words, halos, meaning whole or all, And Kaustas, which has the idea of a sacrificial offering burned on the altar. And a lot of uh, Jews and Israelis don't really like that term, that views it as some sort of offering to God, and they much prefer the word shoah. Another term that is often used is the word genocide. Now genocide, you'll hear people talking about this and uh, one of the th- distinctive things about the Holocaust is that the definition of the Holocaust is what happened to those in, in um, World War II, primarily the Jewish people. It is not talking about genocide in terms of what happened in Rwanda or other places uh, because of the distinctiveness of the German plan and their plan was to... Uh, was to murder every single Jewish person in the world. And most people don't realize that. They think they were just trying to kill all of the Jews in Europe or in Germany or uh, something of that nature, but their aim, as they stated it, was to uh, remove all of the Jews from around the world and eradicate the Jews from uh, the human race. That is uh, something that's different in some ways. It's similar to but different in some ways from genocide. It is a genocide, but often there are different ways in which it's used. Genocide is the intentional action to destroy an ethnic, national, racial, or religious group in a whole or in part. It's a hybrid word from the Greek word uh, gine, gina'o, meaning um, race or people, and side, like in homicide and suicide, which is the act of killing. And this term was uh, coined by Rafael Limkin, a Polish-Jewish lawyer who lived in post-war America in his book, uh, Axis, 1944 book, Axis Rule in Occupied uh, Europe. About the Shoah, The Holocaust was an unprecedented genocide. There are other genocides, but there's only one Holocaust. And you will find people starting to use the word Holocaust to refer to some other genocides, and that must not be allowed because it is distinctively about the Jewish people. Um, The Holocaust was an unprecedented genocide, total and systematic, perpetrated by Nazi Germany, and its collaborators with the aim of annihilating the Jewish people. The primary motivation was the Nazis' anti Semitic racist ideology between 1933, that's when the Holocaust began, that's when their persecution of Jews began, as it had been outlined in, um, in Adolf Hitler's book, My Struggle, Mein Kampf. Uh, Nazi Germany pursued a policy that dispossessed the Jews of their rights and their property, followed by the branding and concentration of the Jewish population. This policy gained broad support in Germany and much of occupied Europe. In 1941, following the invasion of the Soviet Union, the Nazis and their collaborators launched the systematic mass murder of the Jews, By 1945, nearly 6 million Jews had been murdered. One of the reasons that Hitler uh, stopped or stopped the battle for Britain was because he wanted to turn west. He decided by uh, February of 1941, probably earlier, I think, um, in December, he was considering... Uh, ceasing the operations against Britain, they would continue to do it as a camouflage for their intent to attack the Soviet Union in June of that year. Uh, he was turning his attention there, so because he wanted the area uh, areas in Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and up into the Baltic states of Latvia and Lithuania. In order to, uh, this was where most of the Jewish population lived, and he wanted to uh, control it so that they could round up all of the Jews and and murder them. There was a pattern of edu- of uh, persecution that included education, where they were uh, teaching the from the children from a very early age. How evil the Jewish people were, that they were the source of all the problems and ills in Germany, and that they weren't, uh, uh, they were subhuman, they were not truly human. And so this led to the next step was to marginalize the Jewish people so that they could not go to every restaurant, could not shop in every shop, they could uh, not go everywhere, they were limited in their uh, abilities to, uh, to do anything within Germany, and then this led to social isolation and more and more restrictions until they were put into ghettos, the most famous of which is the ghetto in Warsaw, but there were many, many others in almost every city with a Jewish population. They moved all of the Jews into a very small restricted area uh, so that, for example, in Warsaw there were often 20 or 30 people within a Uh, two-room apartment, Uh, and they had to figure out how to live with that. And then there was deportation, moving them out from wherever they lived and uh, using them in many ways in industry as slave labor, and then, of course, mass murder. The main camps that we think of, like Auschwitz and Kelmo Kelmo and uh, Treblinka, and a couple of others were death camps. They were different from uh, other concentration camps like Dachau. Dachau was a labor camp. They also had uh, gas chambers. They were, they were certainly engaged in murdering Jews, but that wasn't the primary and sole purpose of the existence of Dachau, which is what the death camps in Poland were all just about that systematic murder Of the Jewish people. In this slide, you see an example of the type of cartoons and the type of uh, editorial cartoons that would be published in magazines where you have the uh, caricature of the uh, Aryan blonde and strong and tall, and then you have the uh, ugly caricature of a Jewish businessman, and they got just horribly worse than that. and as the time went by, you get into the period of 1935 um, where they passed the Nuremberg Laws, which is the first uh, official legal attack on the individual rights of the Jews in Germany. And these laws marked a progression toward a an irreversible anti-Semitic policy. Between 1935 and 19, 1936, uh, there were more and more of these anti-Jewish laws, prohibiting them from working in the government, prohibiting them from going to uh, schools. They could only go to Jewish schools. They could not practice uh, business or law or medicine at all, and they could not teach in the schools. They couldn't work in uh, journalism. They could not go out to the theaters or to the movies or uh, restaurants or concerts. And they could only go to Jewish shops, which, of course, were also part of, uh, were highly restricted. And they could not swim or engage in sports. So you see how they were completely marginalized. In November of 1938, we have the event known as Kristallnacht, which is the Night of the Broken Glass. And anti-Jewish riots broke out in areas Uh, under Nazi influence, and I've mentioned Ursula Kemp before. When Ursula was about 14 years old, uh, this was when this occurred, and she had vivid memories of this. She and her family were living in Breslau in an apartment building, and the owner of the building was not pro-Nazi, not anti-Semitic, and what he did was he took the names of all the Jewish families who uh, had... um, who lived in the apartment building off of their uh, postal boxes so that when the Gestapo came uh, and they read all the names, they would not see any Jewish names there. And when they asked him, he said they had no Jews living in the building. So at that point, her family knew that it was time to get out of Germany. But that was in 1938 in November, and it took them until early August of the next year, just about three or four weeks before the war broke out, and and they were uh, able to get out. And then they went to Shanghai. Kristallnacht, it is said by Victoria Barrett, who's the director of ethics and religion at the uh, National Museum, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C., that Kristallnacht foreshadowed the extreme violence to come. There was no denying what was going to happen after Kristallnacht. Then in 1939, you had the uh, anti-Jewish laws that uh, made it extremely difficult to leave Germany, and uh, they had to pay, and and Ursula said that when they left, they had the equivalent of about 4 or $5 in their pockets, and that was it. They were banned from public trains. They could no longer drive cars. They could only shop between 3 and 5 in the afternoon, and could not be out after 8 p.m. in the evening, and they could no longer visit Christians. By 1941, when the war had been on for two years, all Jews over the age of six were mandated to wear a uh, yellow star of David with "Yuda," meaning Jew, uh, written on it. And so they were paraded sometimes in the... Um, uh, in the streets, and ridiculed and reviled and made fun of in all sorts of horrible things. On January twentieth, of nineteen forty-two. Now, by this time, the the death camps were in. Some death camps were in operation. There were certainly a number of Jews that were uh, be, that had been murdered and were being murdered. The persecution had gone on for quite a while. And in some ways it was, it seemed like it, it wasn't that it, 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 it wasn't disorganized, but there wasn't a, an official, you know how the Germans are, they want to pay attention to every single detail. They didn't have an overall umbrella policy and plan in place. So there was a meeting that was held in an upscale neighborhood of Berlin called Wannsee. There was an, beautiful lake there, and this was a beautiful uh, home that was built by a very successful businessman, and they met there um, in, on January 20th of 1942 for the purpose of putting this policy together. Now, there's a new book that just came out recently called Ze, and it is written by a, an Oxford professor who is a... Um, Uh, a Holocaust scholar. He's written several other books on the Holocaust. And I picked it up off of uh, a Kindle this morning because in the appendix, he's printed out uh, the minutes from the Bonsai Conference. And a lot was not written down. What's written down is filled with a lot of euphemisms because they (laughs) they knew what they were doing and they didn't want to have a lot on paper. But this, there were 30 copies of these minutes that were then collected and destroyed. But this one set survived, uh, that, which they have in archives in Germany. But it has that was a source of his um, of his documentation there. The Bonze conference uh, itself was called by the chief of the Reich Main Security Office, uh, Reinhard Heyd- Heydrich. Uh, he uh, attended, and there were about 15 that came um, came in attendance. And these are the men who were there. They were upper-level uh, judges and educators and bureaucrats in the government, and they just looked like everyday, ordinary people. Uh, there was, uh, they came together and... They just put everything together up here in the upper right. You have Adolf Eichmann who was put in charge of the whole operation, and that's why it was such a major thing for the Mossad to find and kidnap Eichmann from South America and brought him back alive to Jerusalem so that they could put him on on trial, not to Jerusalem but to Israel, so they could put uh, put him on trial. So these senior Nazi officials gathered together to put together and organize interdepartmental cooperation to implement the what they called euphemistically the Final Solution to the Jewish problem. And uh, here is a map that shows uh, various uh, other camps that all fed into Auschwitz as the major. Uh, major death camps. So there were uh, literally uh, several thousand camps. We think of only the major ones, but there were uh, thousands of other camps spread all around that fed into the uh, major camps. And in the summer of 1941, Rudolf Hess was made commander of Auschwitz-Birkenau, moves his family in, and this is the dichotomy, is that within the German homes... Everything is lovely and nice and, uh, just the best of everything they can have. And then just next to them, you have all of the horrible, uh, misery and suffering of those who are, are in the camps. And here's just one picture. They would take the elderly and women and children that were under the age of about eight or nine, under a certain height, and they would have to go to the gas chambers and their families would, Uh, not ever see them together again. Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviet Army on January 27, 1945, and that's the reason this date was chosen by the UN as the day to uh, remember uh, the Holocaust. When the Allied armies arrived and found the first uh, death camps and concentration camps It was such a brutal shock to the American troops. And uh, General Eisenhower, in tremendous foresight, made it a point that everything would be filmed, documented through still photographs and, uh, and video because he knew there would come a time when people would want to deny that this had ever happened. And he said, I made the visit deliberately... In order to be in a position to give firsthand evidence of these things, if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations merely to uh, propaganda. And under orders from him, the Army Signal Corps recorded approximately 80,000 feet of video uh, together with still photographs. So that is extremely well documented. But we have many people who wish to deny that it ever existed. So it's important that we remember what happened. I think as believers we recognize that God has a value on the Jewish people even if they are not believers, even if they are in apostasy. They are God's chosen people. That doesn't mean he has a different or second way by which they are saved. They are saved only by believing in Yeshua as their Messiah promised and prophesied from the Old Testament. And Peter spoke to a large crowd of Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, and he said, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. So a very Jewish observant, now, a believer in Christ, an apostle, Peter, is speaking to a completely Jewish audience and saying there is no other way. Uh, there are some who think that there is something called a dual covenant and that the Jews are saved because a lot of Christians get wobbly because they know so many observant Jews, they know so many Jews who are faithful to Uh, the god of the old testament and seeking to uh, still observe the law and they just can't believe that god is not going to save them uh, in in some way and this has had a terrible impact on a number of uh, gentile theologians who try to figure out some way that all of these observant jews are going to be saved but sadly um, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And some of these wonderful people, just like there are wonderful Gentiles who have all kinds of talents and abilities, but they have rejected the Savior, and so they are under the condemnation, as John 3:18 says: "Those who have not believed are condemned already; we're born condemned." Uh, because the uh, the only way to salvation is to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's important that we not forget this, because racism, true racism, not this nonsense from Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. Somebody sent me a um, report that I did not have time to look at on my on my way here that uh Kincaid, very uh prominent private school not far from here in Houston, teaches from the framework of critical race theory. It's just infected much in our country and it is a racist racism and uh or racist anti racism. So we have to remember these these lessons and we have to be able to communicate the truth to other believers as to why it's important to support Israel and to support the Jewish people and to work against anti-Semitism. So it's important we never forget, uh, because there's increasing uh, antipathy toward the Jewish state, and anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I know some people want to argue that, but it's not worth arguing about because the reason, one of the reasons the Jewish state exists is to have a home so that this will never happen again and Jews will have a place in the world to which to flee. And during World War II, they could not go anywhere. That's why Ursula Kemp and her family ended up in Shanghai. At the time they got out of Germany, they could go to Colombia, which was having a revolution, or they could go to Shanghai. And uh, there's the story of, of uh, ships that were turned away from every country until they uh, finally had to go back to Germany and everyone was, was uh, murdered. So this is just a, a, a t- absolutely terrible thing. And so there, they, the Jewish state exists, so there is one place where Jews can go to escape anti-Semitism and uh, the desire to dis- to destroy them. Uh, Anti-Semitism has come now to levels that have not been seen since the time before World War II. It's increasing in France. A lot of that is due to the Muslims that are there. It's increasing in the rest of Europe. A lot of it is also due to the Muslims there. But the, uh, the it, it, it found a home in the replacement theology of Roman Catholicism back in the uh days of the early church starting in the second uh late second early third century and became institutionalized by the middle ages uh ho- the holocaust is diminished or denied outright or ignore- ignored in many places and many witnesses many of the survivors have uh, died recently due to covid here is a one of the uh, uh floats in a recent uh, uh, parade in uh, Britain. Uh, The quote here from Daniel Schwamenthal, the director of the Brussels-based... No, this was in Brussels. uh, Brussels Brussels-based office of the American Jewish Committee writes, "...it's shocking beyond belief that within living memory of the Holocaust, a carnival parade in Europe would peddle such vile anti-Semitism." In Britain... One in five citizens of the U.K. now believe that the Jews are somehow responsible for the coronavirus. The Jews were accused of the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages uh, that's in the 1300s when the Black Death swept Europe. Uh, rise of anti-Semitism in the U.S. A 72-year-old Hasidic rabbi was one of five people who were injured in a machete attack during a Hanukkah celebration. There was a shooting in which five people were killed inside a kosher market in Jersey City. Uh, Third, an Orthodox Jewish man was also stabbed outside of a synagogue in New York. And on Sunday, I put this chart up on the screen in a recent survey asking the question, do you believe the Jews are God's chosen people? Uh, 51% of those surveyed said they still believe uh, that they are God, the Jews are God's chosen people, but that's down from about eighty percent several uh, two or three decades ago, and the reason, as I said on Sunday, the reason for this is because most people aren't going to church. That's typically where people learn to love the Jewish people. In fact, uh, much of the pro-Israel support comes from people who've never been to Israel, and they support Israel only because of what they have learned about the Jewish people from the Bible. Uh, 17% of those surveyed believe the Christians replaced the Jews, and that belief is the seedbed of anti-Semitism. It doesn't mean that the person who believes that is necessarily anti-Semitic, but that is a foundational belief that is used to promote anti-Semitism. 10% 10% believe they never were God's chosen people, so that means 27% have a really bad, hostile attitude over a quarter of the U.S. population. Uh, 19% aren't sure, and the other 2% are just smoking dope somewhere. They don't know what's going on. Ellie Wiesel, who wrote The Night, he wrote The Night, he wrote, Night, he wrote Light, and he wrote Day, uh, a trilogy, called The Night Trilogy, says we must take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. Sometimes we must interfere. When human lives are endangered, when human dignity is in jeopardy, national borders and sensitivities become irrelevant. Wherever men and women are persecuted because of their race, religion, or political views, the place must at that moment become the center of the universe. I had an opportunity to hear him speak about a year before he uh, before he died. He, uh, heard him here in Houston. So this slide will be up there so you can go to it when it's posted with the slides for this class tonight. But if you're interested in providing an education for your children or grandchildren, you can go to the United States Holocaust. Um, a memorial and Museum, that's the ushmm.org slash collection slash bibliography slash children's hyphen books. And they classify children's books as what's age appropriate because not everything that you want to talk about is age appropriate. I remember the first time that I learned something of the Holocaust. I was probably five or six years old. At that time, my dad had been transferred to um, Canada. He'd been put on loan to Trans Canada Pipeline. He was an engineer. And because my mother had polio and was in a wheelchair, we had to always had to have uh, help in the, in, in the house for housework and various things. And so we had a mother and daughter who worked for us who were Dutch. And they, and this was 1956 or 57. So it's like a little over ten years after the war ended. This was a fresh memory, and this mother and daughter and, bro- and the, uh, the daughter's brothers had uh, most of them had left Europe after the war and had gone to Canada, but during the war, excuse me, during the war, they uh, they ran an underground in Holland. And they uh, printed underground papers, and they uh, spread messages, and they sent messages to the allies, and they hid jews and I read a recent report that said that a large number of Dutch were responsible for hiding Jews, and a huge number of Jews were hidden. Uh, eventually, many of them were found, but that was that was common. And so my mother would tell me a little bit about these stories and and tell me a little bit about what they did in an age-appropriate kind of way. And then when um, um, I remember when we moved back to Houston, and I don't know what occasion did, but I knew that, that uh, it was made very clear to me uh, as I grew up, that the Jewish people, we lived over in Meyerland, which if those of you don't know Houston very well or may not be from here, Meyerland is where a lot of Jewish people moved uh, in the late 50s and 60s. And it was referred to as Little Jerusalem. And a lot of the kids that I grew up with were were Jewish. And my mother always would tell me that remind me that they were God's chosen people and they were the apple of God's eye and that they were important and that warned me against any kind of anti-Semitism. And so that is just a good example for all parents to follow uh, with their kids. All right, well, let's look at the Word of God and go to uh, our study in Judges And we've moved beyond talking about the creation of man and woman in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, that God created man, male and female. He created them, and he created them in his image and likeness. And he gave them a mandate that some call the dominion mandate. People who use that term are usually dominionists. Uh, it's the creation mandate. It was a, it was a uh, mandate that God gave to the human race at the very inception, and it will not be fulfilled as it should be until the second Adam comes at the second coming of Christ and he establishes his kingdom uh, in Jerusalem. We're studying this because judges, the Judges period is a reflection a a prototype, let's say, of what's happening in our world today where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. They've rejected God. God was the king in the theocracy in Israel, and so they rejected God's plan for marriage. They rejected God's plan for family because they sold out God, they turned away from God, and they abandoned God and turned to the nature religions of the Canaanites and this kind of nature religion was uh, deeply involved with all sorts of sexual perversion and sexual immorality. and that is very much what we see on the rise and have seen it for the last fifty years in, in the West and it's always been there in pagan societies and uh, other parts of the world. The problem is that people have rejected God and they've wor- worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And it always sounds good. They give great rationalizations, but the Proverbs teaches us that there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. The term for there that summarizes all of the pagan systems is ultimately is monism, that everything shares the same essence. You'll hear people talk about, oh, human beings have a little spark of divinity in them, and that's they've got this... This essence of God. It's shared through everything. And so it's nothing more than reducing everything to this state of one, as uh, some refer to this as oneism versus twoism, the two referring to the creator and the creature distinction. So, monism, just to remind you, is that everything shares the same essence and that, that therefore barriers don't really exist. The barriers of kinds, the divisions that God establishes in his creation in Genesis 1 aren't real. Uh, the sexual g- uh, distinctions between male and female are just social constructs. And this is the problem that we've got today, is that fewer and fewer people are living in the realm of reality reality, recognizing it's a finite universe under the authority of a triune God, and they want to think that God, man, and nature are all one and the same, and the whole ecology movement is, is grounded in this sort of earth-worshipping paganism. So we've looked at the creation of Adam first in Genesis 2, and then the creation of Eve as a design to be his helper. We've gone through quite a bit. Last week, we looked at all of the differences that God designed between men and women, seeing that equality does not mean interchangeability. We are all equally in the image and likeness of God, and so that women are not somehow lesser uh, human because they are to be subordinate to man. And we've discussed the horrible implications of that for the Trinity, and we'll be coming back to that several more times Uh, as we go through the remainder of this study so tonight we're starting to look at the what the bible teaches about the impact of sin on males and females remember god establishes the authority in the garden of eden because there's authority within the godhead authority is not something evil and authority is not designed as a response to sin and disorder Authority is what's necessary to get anything accomplished and to do anything. So we have this impact of sin. Now, what we've done so far, as I've just mentioned, we've reviewed Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We've looked at this issue uh, that equality does not mean interchangeability. We've looked at, in that category, the hidden agenda of interchangeableness, that men and women are completely interchangeable and can do everything. There's certainly some element of that. Uh, but there are differences, and we looked at those. And we looked at Genesis 2:16 to 25. So tonight we're going to look at Genesis 3, 15. And that won't take long. And then we'll begin to look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, and then wrap up the study with the study of 1 Corinthians 11:2 to 16. These are very important passages that have become very controversial. They have been interpreted uh, throughout the history of christianity in basically the same way for about 18 to 1900 years and in the last century there's been all sorts of attempts to just sort of rewrite the obvious meaning uh, of the text so in G- genesis 2:18, we see that god said it's not good that man should be alone now That word good does not have the sense of righteous, okay, versus unrighteous. The word good, tov, does not necessarily have a moral or ethical meaning. What it has is it's not God's plan for man to be alone, and it specifically uses a word for the male. It's not good. God did not intend for the male to be alone, and God says, I will make a helper, an assistant, comparable to him now as an assistant the woman is not lesser she is different she has a different kind of role and it's part of the curse the judgment on sin that men distort their role and women rebel against their role so how did that happen If you look in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 3, after Eve ate first and then Adam ate, uh, God comes walking in the garden and they ran and hid. And they were afraid. That shows that they that that corruption from sin had already taken place. God doesn't judge them or curse them in that sense, making them sinful. They are already spiritually dead. That separation from God causes them to be afraid. They're fearful of the righteous, holy God. And so he asks a question. Uh, he knows what the answer is, but God often frequently asks, through the scripture, ask questions to get people to think about what the the answer and the implications of the answer. Jesus does that a lot in the gospels. And too often, some of us just want to tell people what the answers are instead of just asking questions and let them work with it for a while because we're too impatient and work with it for a while to come up with the the answers. And so God says, well, where are you? And he's pointing out, well, why aren't you here? That's what we've done every day for weeks or months. said, where are you? And his subtext is, well, why are you there? Why aren't you here? Think about what has happened. So uh, Adam says in verse 10, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So he's afraid, and he knows he's naked. So God says, who told you you were naked? Where did that come from? Where did that realization develop? And then he asks, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, passing the buck, men still do this quite frequently, blame the wife, blame somebody else. The woman whom you gave me, so in one... Clause, Adam blames both Eve and God for his failure. He's already a, a sinner, wanting to avoid responsibility. The woman whom you gave to me, be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? So the woman has learned her lesson from the man She's at least fulfilling her responsibility in a distorted sort of way, is following the leadership of her husband now. Uh, And she says, well, uh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she's already learned to pass the buck by following his example. And in verse 14, God describes what the consequences are. That's really what the curse is. It is defining what the consequences are for each one and what's so interesting is that each of these consequences correlate to the those commands in Genesis 1:28 that God gave to the woman and we'll look at that in just a minute and so he first he talks about to the serpent because you have done this you are cursed more than all the cattle notice that he is not saying that he is the only animal that will reap consequences from this, but his consequences are going to be greater than all of the other animals. More than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. You're now in a position of subordination and uh, where you're going to be uh, walked on. And then in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first hint or suggestion of the gospel. And so 315 is often called the proto-evangelium, the first uh, hint of the gospel that God has a plan to redeem mankind and it's the conflict Uh, that begins here with between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, the descendants, or the seed of the serpent. Then we come to verse 16, which I have up on the screen. To the woman he says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a couple of important things to point out here in a t- standard type English translations. It looks like she was already going to have pain and suffering and God's going to multiply it. That is not how the Hebrew reads. But it does emphasize that now there's going to be pain. The pain was not associated with that to begin with. So we have to ask the question, well, what has happened here? And what has happened is disobedience to God, and it has consequences. It reverberated through every atom and every molecule in the universe and changed everything. So let's go back to the commands that God gave to Adam and the woman in Genesis 1.28. It's the creation mandate. God blessed them and said to them, number one, be fruitful and multiply. Two commands related to one another. They are to propagate the species. They are to have sexual relations and propagate the species. And second, they are to fill the earth. Because God realizes what's embedded in this is the realization that God knew that just two human beings could not fulfill this mandate. They needed to, uh, He envisioned them populating the entire earth and all of the human race. Um, having a rulership role over everything in God's creation. And um, have y'all ever seen this? Uh, they're, they're showing it now on, it's probably on right now, on, uh, on PBS, and it's called, I think it's called Animals with Cameras. Have you ever seen that? It is a great show. And what these scientists are doing is really a function of the creation mandate. They are using, putting cameras on all kinds of animals so that they can learn more about their behaviors and their habitats, so they can uh, deal with them better, so that they can protect them better, so that they can make sure their habitats are protected, so they can watch over them. That would be envisioned within the original creation mandate. So man is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. That means bring it under control. Man was designed to be a developer, a land developer, not just to leave everything in its primitive state of a rainforest or a primeval jungle, but to study, to learn about all of the natural resources, all of the things that God built into the creation, and to use them... Uh, for the entire uh, human race to learn all about this wonderful creation and to have dominion to rule over the fish of the sea the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth everything on the earth is under the authority of the human race now what happened well God said to be fruitful and multiply, but now there is going to be pain and suffering associated with the birth process. Procreation becomes painful. Filling the earth and subduing it, well, the earth is going to fight back with thorns and thistles, storms and earthquakes and droughts and famines and all kinds of things. Fourth, having dominion over the various uh, animals on the earth, because an animal, a serpent, was used to deceive Eve. The serpent is cursed more than all of the animals, but all of the animals are judged. There are consequences for all of the animals. So to the woman God said, "'I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception.'" So this sounds like there's some sorrow and a problem there to begin with, and now it's going to be increased, but that's not what it says. It says that it's going to be, this pain will come into existence. The first word that's used in this uh, phrase is rava. It's used twice. It's used, it's like a, when God said to Adam and Eve that the day you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That that in, that interprets a Hebrew phrase where you have an infinitive plus a uh, you have an infinitive plus a finite verb, and so this means it's emphasizing the certainty of something. It doesn't. It, it, it's it's and the idea of rabah is to uh, it emphasizes something that is numerous. There's a multiplication of something, but it, 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 it has the idea of bringing it into existence. It's sort of difficult to translate that into, uh, into English, but God is saying that your sorrow and, your, and the conception will uh, be involved in increasing uh, pain, and this will come into existence now as a result, uh, as a result of sin. And that sentence, the first uh, clause, is paralleled and made more specific in the synonymous second clause. In pain you shall bring forth children. If you didn't get the poetry of the first line, we're going to make it real clear the second line that giving birth is going to bring forth pain. There's going to be physical pain uh, in the process. There are hormonal changes that take place. Uh, there are all kinds of things that go along in a woman's body when she is giving birth, and uh, not aside from the regular cycles that go on, all of this is a reminder of, of Eve's sin, and there are or consequences, physical consequences. So many people think think that sin just has spiritual consequences, but but sin has physical consequences. It changed uh, things, and what's so phenomenal is that that God built into everything He created in the universe enough flexibility and elasticity in order to handled the chaos that sin would bring so that that even though god designed all the systems perfectly and everything's going to get warped and distorted because of sin god designed it so that it could handle uh, all of that that comes with the sin and then the next line is a line that's often been mistaught misapplied God, speaking to the woman, says, "...your desire shall be for your husband." And this is the Hebrew word, teshukwa. And it is only used in three locations in the Scripture. I'm not going to take time to look at the one in Song of Solomon. Solomon wrote poetry. Words have a different meaning in poetry than they do in narrative. And he writes in poetry in Song of Solomon. The context is very different. And Moses used it two times, once in chapter three and once in chapter four, very close to one another. And that proximity of not only using the word for desire, but the same word for rule occurs in Genesis four seven. And so by looking at Genesis four seven, we come to understand the significance of both of these words when we look at Genesis three sixteen. In Genesis 4-7, God is speaking to Cain. Cain has brought the wrong kind of sacrifice, the fruit of his own labor, trying to impress God with his works, whereas Abel brought a lamb for a sacrifice. And we infer that, and I believe this based on Hebrews, um, that, that there was divine revelation through Adam and Eve as to what the appropriate sacrifices would be Cain Cain, uh, sacrifices, offerings rejected, and he has a pity party and a meltdown. And his countenance fell, which is a word that describes anger and depression. He is mad at God, and he's mad at Abel. And God speaks to him and warns him. He says, if you do well, in other words, you do the right thing, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, this is the warning, sin lies at the door. It's a picture of a ravenous animal crouched, ready to pounce and destroy. Its desire is for you. Is that a desire for love and sexual attraction and all of that? Not at all. Not only that, but when you look at Genesis 1, 3.16, many people have taught this as as a sexual desire. The woman's going to lust after her husband. That's a good thing. Genesis 3.16 is a context of a negative consequence, not a positive consequence. This isn't a good desire. This is a sinful desire, a desire to control, dominate, and to take leadership. That's what the woman did in the garden. She, instead of talking to her husband about what the serpent said first, she goes out on her own and makes the decision on her own, and it leads to absolute disaster. So this is a trend that doesn't mean that every woman is going to have a desire to dominate and control her husband to the same degree as, as somebody else. But this is a general trend among women. Some are going to be this way more than others. And that's, so that's the idea here. And so this is the word uh, teshuka. But the other word that shows up in both passages is the word rule. And this is the idea that of, of dominion or exercising authority. Now, there's, there's a certain amount of debate as to uh, what is going on here. Is this a positive or is this a negative? I tend to think that in Genesis 3.16, because the overall concept, context is a negative, that it's a negative, that this, this is the woman wants to dominate the husband and the husband wants to squash the wife. It's negative on both sides. That's the battle of the sexes. And the only thing that's going to reverse it is the word of God and, and spiritual growth, where the husband learns to love the wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife learns to submit to her husband uh, as unto the Lord. So this that that's the positive. But there's also a view that that there may be a positive sense to this, and I don't uh, go along with that. I don't think that's the, the primary idea here. But if it's positive, then the idea is that the husband's actions, his ruling over a rebellious wife is bring her under, under control, and his proper and gracious leadership helps to uh, restrain that desire to dominate And uh, so he exercises his role as the leader in a positive way. Now, that's true, but I don't know that that's what this is saying in this context because this is couched within where everything that is said from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter is negative, not positive. But it has a positive sense, I think, in in Genesis 4-7, because it's, uh, if, if the sin is desiring to control you, then you should rule over it through self-discipline and self-control and not let sin have its, have its way. What we learn here is that because of sin, life is corrupted. Our souls are corrupted. Our desires are corrupted our relationships, our responsibilities, how we look at responsibilities. Everything in life is corrupted and corroded because of sin. We do not live in a perfect world or with perfect people. That's why part of love as described in Genesis, I mean in 1 Corinthians 13 is love forgives. It bears all things. And then the all things includes the dumb, stupid, wrong things that your spouse does. And you put up with it out of love, and you don't make an issue out out of these things. Um, And that takes time of growing and maturing together. Second, it does not remove God's design for roles and functions within His plan. Sin doesn't remove or change the roles that God designed for man and woman, for the man, wife, husband and the wife, for the male and the female. Men and women are still equally in the image of God. It's just the image of God is corroded, tarnished, but it's not effaced or destroyed. Men and women are still designed for different roles and functions. And the woman is still in many ways designed to... Uh, help the man and together achieving the ultimate goals that God wants for them in whatever areas there should be. And so one of the things that I have asked um, in counseling before in premarital counseling is uh, to ask the uh, girl if or lady if, uh, well, what's God's plan for this guy's life? Are you willing to support him in pursuing God's plan for his life? Is that what you want to do? Because that's what God's called you to do, is to help him pursue God's plan for his life. And a lot of times men get into jobs or careers that take them away from the home, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Can you imagine somebody like a, like a, a Michael DeBakey who's Oh, his wife always wants him home. You just work eight hours a day and come home. We'd have never had a heart transplant. So there are some men who are gifted by God in some ways where they're not going to work a 40-hour week or a 50-hour week or a 70-hour week. And you've got to be willing to help that man fulfill the gifts and talents that God has given him. But the man, on the other hand, needs to make sure that he deals with his wife in a, in a gentle and generous and gracious manner. And he can't just be that way all the time or you're going to have lots of problems. Sin corrupts our understanding of everything and the only thing that's going to correct it is getting a lot of the teaching of God's word into our souls and transform our thinking. Sin corrupts our physical uh, biology and then paganism in the world system attempts to redefine the meaning of male and female. So just to wrap up the rest of the session, Adam has his problems too. God said to Adam, "Because you've listened to the wife, the voice of your wife." And now, that's a bad thing for Adam. Later on, Abraham doesn't listen to the voice of his wife. He listens to her and it's wrong. And then he listens to her again, and and he should. Or, or, excuse me, he l- listens to her with Hagar which he shouldn't have done. And then later, he doesn't listen to her, and he should have. So it's not automatic that husbands, if you listen to your wife, doesn't mean it's a bad thing. In fact, for most men, it's probably a good thing. But God says, um, cursed is the ground for your sake. What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to Uh, toil, and and it wasn't toil. He was supposed to work the soil, and he was supposed to be involved in keeping and guarding the garden. And now it's going to fight back. Now that which God, that responsibility God gave him is going to be difficult, and he's going to eat from the ground in toil, sweat. You see, you have Responsible labor in Genesis 2 in the perfection of the garden. They just weren't sitting around, lying around, feeding grapes to one another. Uh, they were, uh, they were had responsibilities, but it wasn't toilsome. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't the sweat of the brow. They they weren't having the creation fight back. Now it's fighting back with thorns and thistles, and. Uh, so God says both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread there's no such thing as a free lunch it takes work to get food and that's why one of the problems we have in our whole welfare system is there needs to be responsible labor in order to get a welfare check and there's all kinds of things people can do you can put them on a on a road gang to clean up the litter along the highway, you can put them, to, put them to work in all kinds of things. And we used to do that with our penal system, but then it was considered cruel and unusual punishment. So I guess what God did here was not constitutional because he's making Adam toil and sweat. And then finally, for dust you are, and to death you shall return. That's the first time physical death is mentioned. It's a consequence of sin. So we didn't get there tonight, but next time we'll start with 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to realize we're all uh, we're all flawed, we're all sinners, we're all corrupt and self-absorbed, and we are all narcissists because of our sin nature and we're arrogant and self-centered. But, Father, that can change at the cross and we become new creatures in Christ, but it's only by uh, study of the word and our diligence in application of the word changing the way we think and act and react. And it is only through God the Holy Spirit who, who matures us, sanctifies us, and strengthens us. And, Father, that's our only hope to see to some degree the elements of the curse rolled back in our own personal lives. And we pray that you challenge us with what we've learned today because without understanding the truths that we've covered today, there's no understanding of relationships. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.